Uh, but it's great to see you all here, and thank you for taking the effort to come, to come to meet Christ, to come and connect with God in the sanctuary. I believe that it is a special place. Uh, yes, we can worship God online, we can worship God at home, uh, but it's nothing like coming here, setting aside everything to tell God, this is the time, this is the place I give to you. So today, uh, we are going to continue um, on uh, a series of sermons that we are starting after we finish SP series on uh, time of the end. That, that was the part one. Right? There are a few more parts to come later in the year. But we're going to start a series of sermons that will run through to me on what it means to live as a disciple of Christ. We know where we're, going, where we're headed towards a blessed hope, but how do we live in this day and age? So we're going to look at various parts of Scripture on living the Christ life. Why is this important? Let me give you a bit of a backdrop why it's important to see how we are living today. So the Pew Research um, Center in the US, it's a think tank, right? So it's like, um, well, like a, <laughs> it's a think tank. Right? So it's a group of people, academics, they do research, they write research papers, and then they publish. And they do regular research on attitudes of Christians, or attitudes of Americans towards religion, towards politics, towards many things. But one interesting set of interviews or, or research that they do is about attitudes towards Christianity and religion. So this forms the backdrop, really, of what I want to talk about today. If you look at here on the graph, I hope it's not too small. This is the year 2009. Number of US, um, well, people in the US, right, who call themselves Christians. In 2009, the number was at 77%. In 2019, every year they were asked this, and the number dropped year on year. In 2019, when they asked the same question, it came back at 65%. That's a 12% drop in 10 years of people who consider themselves Christian. If you look at the population of the US, and this is fairly representative because they interviewed or they, they called up you know, 35,000 people across the country, this is a randomized survey. That's 40 million people who over the course of 10 years decided that, nope, I don't think I want to call myself a Christian anymore. Let's look at this slide. This shows the different profiles of people who have decided to give up Christianity in these 10 years. You'll see the difference between well, men and women. It's fairly even. Look at this. This is the percentage of those in different generations of people who have decided to say, I am no longer a Christian. We have at the top here the, what we call the silent generation, those who were born. So these are people from their 70s to their 90s. right? So minus 2%, hardly any change. The baby boomers, those who are uh, today uh, between uh, 60 to uh, 50 to 70 years old, right? 6% change. Look at Generation X. Look at the millennials, those who were born from 1980 to the year 2000. That's 16%. A massive drop in that number of people who consider themselves Christians. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why have 12% of Americans decided to consider themselves non-Christians in the course of 10 years? And why is it that the young people, especially those in this age band, those who, to, who are today uh, between the ages of uh, 20 to 40 years old, why have so many of them turned away? The other statistic here also is to look at education. Right? Those who, the more educated you are, the higher likelihood you are of saying, I don't want to be a Christian. This chart shows the snapshot of what, of what exists today in 2019 number of people who consider themselves to be Christians in the different generations. And you'll see 85% in 
in the silent generation, those in age 70 to 90, and among the millennials, age 25 to 40, that number drops to 50%. So only half of that group who consider themselves Christian against an, a national average of 65%. This is another statistic. Of those who consider themselves Christian, so of that 65% today, in, or not today, 2019, of the 65% in 2019, how many of them attend church? Slightly more than half, 65% say they go on a monthly basis, and of that, less than half, 44% go on a weekly basis. Out of these 65% who consider themselves Christian, how many say that they are born again? Only 60% of them. I don't mean 60% out of 65. I mean slightly more than half of that 65% say that they are born again. What does the rest of the 41% of the people think? Right? I'm a Christian, but I'm not born again. So this, I think, reflects a changing attitude towards Christianity, a changing attitude towards faith and religion. And this is, uh, of course, data in the United States. We don't do such extensive surveys in Singapore, but we do have some data that comes from our census, right? So this is from uh, Singstat. So we've done censuses over the years, every 10 years, and we see the, the percentage of Christians growing from 13% in 1990, 15% in 2000, to 18% in the year 2010. In 2015, when they did a general household survey, uh, that number is it's about there. It's fairly stable, 18 to 19%. So we see Christianity still growing, but we also see the growth of Christianity tapering off. When we look at the youth in Singapore, these are the percentages of different age groups who consider themselves religious, or in this case, with no religious affiliation. So this is uh, with regard to any religion. And we see that the younger people basically are taking on a stance where I'm not so sure about this thing you call religion. It is the religion of my parents, right? But certainly for ourselves, we think differently about this. So what do we take away from all this data, from these statistics? I would say I take away three things. Firstly, Christianity is on a steep decline in the West. There's a heavy consumption of Western media, on the influence of you know, society, of politics, of culture. And this spreads from the West all the way to Singapore. Why? Because we consume so much Western media, whether it's TV, internet, platforms, technology. We are influenced heavily by what goes on in the West. And surely what has happened there in the past 10 years will eventually make its way here to Singapore. Some of us have already started to see this, and it will continue to increase as the years go on. The reality that they face in the US now will be our reality in the years ahead. And that is something that I think the church needs to be ready for. Secondly, I think we also see that the challenge of accepting religion is most acute for the younger generation. This is something that I think really affects them because of the way in which they consume information today. Right? We, we hear of uh, you know, millennials, post-millennials, people who are born with an iPad uh, in their hands, they are digital natives, you know, Information and influence that they take just travel seamlessly and without any borders, right, straight into their hands. And they're bombarded each day by alternative worldviews, by ideas, by alternatives to what the Bible says, with a secular worldview, a worldview of what it means to be an individual, what it means to be yourself, right? And this is a constant slow drip that they are all exposed to each time they pick up their phone, each time they talk to their friends, each time they make a post on Instagram, on Facebook. This is, what, this is the message that they're receiving. 
how do we as a church, you know, on once a week, on Sundays, or at youth church, right, or at, at Youth for Christ, how do we impact them? How do we get the Christian worldview, the view of God into their life if we are only talking to them once a week? So I think this is something that we know and something that we are concerned about and something that for all of us, you know, as, as adults, as youth, really need to think about what are we doing for our children and the next generation, for how they perceive God and Christ. And the third thing I think we take away from this is that there are many reasons why people consider themselves to be Christians, and there are perhaps many different perspectives of Christianity. Christianity can be the faith of your parents, something that you inherited because your parents were Christian. It could be the faith of your culture, right, because you are a Christian nation founded on godly principles as the US was, and then you consider yourself Christian because historically all of us are Christian. It could be something that you have an affinity for. Out of all the religions, yeah, I find this one the least offensive, you know, or the most modern, or the most, um, all my friends are, are there, so that's, that's my religion. Or Christianity could be really your personal faith, your personal belief, and your own relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are many different ways that Christianity can be perceived. But for all of us here and for Singapore, you know, as Christianity is growing, you'll find that, well, the number of people who are committed Christians will continue to remain high. But what's going to happen in 20 or 30 years? What's going to happen when those who were converted in the 80s, 90s, start to have children who no longer share the faith and views of their parents? The next generation, my children, are one day going to have to think about what does their faith mean to them? Not what does my faith mean to them, what does their faith mean? mean to them? So these are big questions that the church and that all of us here as Christians will have to deal with. So let me come back to the topic of today. If salvation is free, why is it that the numbers are dropping? Why is it that people are turning away from the gospel, turning away from Christ? Why don't more people take it up? If I told you today that I'm going to give you $100, anybody who wants to come up here on stage, I'll give you 100 bucks, right? I think I'll be out of pocket very soon and all my money will be gone. But yet, here we have something that we say is free, but people are not taking it. Why? I think it is because while salvation is free, there is a cost to following Christ. Wait a minute. You ask me, you know, you say it's free, but there's a cost. What, what kind of con- that's a contradiction, right? Are you trying to con us? Let's look at it this way. Christ has paid the price for our sins. He's done it once and for all. Right? He's, he's taken our sins on himself. He's reconciled us to God. He's created a way for us to come to God sinless and blameless. And so we don't have to do anything to contribute to that. That is the free salvation. However, in following Christ's example, that is going to cost us everything. Let's say a distant relative gives you an inheritance, $10 million, and tells you it's free, no strings attached, just take the money. Right? So that's a free gift. So you receive it, but the next moment, you know, your relatives are calling you up, asking you for their share of the inheritance. Friends who you forgot or didn't know you had suddenly start to appear and start to be nice to you, and then you wonder, you know, why are you suddenly you know, uh, being friendly to me? Uh, the, the pressure of sustaining a certain lifestyle and, and, and image imposes a stress on, of its own because of this new front that you need to project, one that you are you know, befitting of your wealthy status. So the $10 million may have been free to you, but it will cost you to receive it. It will cost you to to keep it. 
So today we want to look exactly at this issue. What exactly is the cost of following Christ in this post-millennial world, on this, this side of 2000? What is it going to cost you? What is it going to cost us? And more importantly, is it worth it? Please join me as we pray. Father, we pray today as we look in your word and look at the words of Christ, that you will open our eyes to see the truth of your word. Open our minds to ponder the things above and open our hearts to receive of your spirit. As I bring your word here today, Father, hide me behind the cross, that the world will see only you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so last week, Elder Kogwan shared with us about staying fit for the kingdom. And he spoke about the price to pay, he spoke about priorities to set, and he spoke about a posture to take. So this happened in Luke 9, verse 63. So today we're going to step back a little bit in time, just behind that, into a bit of a prequel. What happened before he explained to the disciples the cost of following him? This is what happened in the earlier part of Luke 9. Let me read to you. To you. In verse 18 it says, Now it happened that as he, this was Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So here in Luke 9, Jesus has just performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000. And we read, we read in verse 18 that he was praying. So many times in, in the gospel, before something significant is about to happen, we see Jesus praying on his own. And this was no different. After he prayed, it records that he asked his disciples this all-important question. Who do you say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? It's a simple question. But the answer that we give, the answer that they gave to that question, would determine their destiny. It would determine their eternity. So he gets three answers for the same question. When he asked it of the, of the crowds, they say, John the Baptist, Elijah the prophet. What are they thinking of? These were people who came who would reform and overthrow the rulers. They were looking for a political messiah, someone who would come, rescue them from their plight, overthrow the Romans, and, and deliver the people. When he turned privately to the disciples, what did they say? Peter said, you are the Christ. The Christ is the messiah. So here they were talking about the promised messiah of the Old Testament. God's promised redeemer of Isaiah. So Jesus was clearly pleased, knowing that, yes, they are, they are coming to understand who he was, right? Not the political person who's going to come and rescue Israel from their plight, but the God's promised Messiah of the Old Testament. But then he also gave now his own estimation of himself. And he told them he was going to come and he was the son of man. He would suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, and be raised. This surely would have been a blow to them. And they would have been very shocked. Firstly, that this is not just a God who's going to come and save us, but He's going to have to die and be rejected and be raised again. And upon telling them this, 
he went on and faced the crowds again, who did not hear this conversation, but facing the crowds to everyone who was there, and he uttered these words, If anyone here would want to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Let's unpack this statement for the rest of the sermon. What exactly does it mean to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow me? The whole conversation in Luke 9 hinges on this statement. After we identify who Jesus is, if we rightly see him for who he is as the Son of God, then he says, follow my example. How do we deny ourselves? Let me say that denying ourselves is totally counter-cultural in this post-millennial world, on this side of 2000, right? I mean, it's, it started, you know, post-modernism and all that. There were many things that took place uh, before 2000. But in this day and age, you has been placed, or you have you, the word you has been placed in the centre of the universe. And I'm not talking about just millennials, people who, you know, are born after 2000s or, or uh, what we call uh, Gen Z, right? Uh, those who were born uh, before 2000. No, sorry, Gen Z after 2000. Millennials are those before Gen Y. This affects all of us. Whether you are here 50 years old, 70 years old, or 40 years old, we have placed ourselves in the centre of our universe. Why? Because that's the way the world goes. In the past 40 years, there's been a three times increase in, this, in the diagnosis of this disease called Narcissistic Personality Disorder, okay, NBT, NPD. You can look it up if you don't believe me. Right? It's a real disease. And what, does it, what are the symptoms? Let me read this to you. Right? Inflated sense of own importance, exaggerated achievements and talents, belief in superiority, deep need for excessive attention and admiration, insist on having the best of everything, fragile self-esteem, vulnerable to criticism, secret feelings of insecurity, shame and vulnerability, lack of empathy, inability to recognise the needs and the feelings of others. This is a medical condition. Okay? Some of you, I think, Monday you might go and report sick and see your doctor. Right? But there's been a three times increase in the number of people who are diagnosed with this condition. Social media and internet has given rise to a, a, a symptom of instant gratification and feedback, right? Any, allowing anyone around the world to attract millions of fans, millions of likes, by doing you know, random and mundane things, right? uh, posting random facts about their life, about their cat's life, or, or you know, opening a, a box of toys. Right? The, the rise of individualism over collectivism is now front and centre. And this really is a symptom of a rising middle class, rising wealth, right? Information age has given so much power to the hands of individuals today, so much so that they feel that individuals are empowered over organisations, over the collective, and over the establishment. You look at movements like, uh, you know, recently uh, GameStop, right? Where you had a bunch of people on an online forum who decided to take on a hedge fund and, and break, break their short right, strategy, squeeze the, the short strategy. We have hackers, right, who target corporations. Uh, we have the Arab Spring, the Hong Kong Umbrella Revolution. Uh, we have startups like Airbnb, Uber, YouTube, who have taken on massive giants in the hotel industry, in the taxi transport industry, and in the movie industry. Right? And, and all around the world, we find individuals now thrust forward, feeling empowered, feeling that they can make a difference to this world. I'm not saying that they can't, but I'm saying that this view and perspective really is so much ingrained in us in this day and age. Be yourself, discover yourself, be all that you want to be. This is the lure of the media, and this is the attraction of our personal devices and the games that are created and coded and designed to make addicts of all of us. So in this world of today, Jesus' call to deny yourself is about as radical as it gets. What does it mean when he says deny yourself, 
and pick up your cross. So we hear the, of the term used, you know, pick up my cross, right? So, um, you know, so some people can say that, oh, um, I, I have an illness, right? I have a, a, a limp or I have a, you know, a, a broken arm or I have, there's an inconvenience in my life or misfortune has, has befallen me. So this is, this is my cross to bear, right? My lot in life. When Jesus says to take up your cross 2,000 years ago, it's nothing like what we talk about our cross to bear today. It's not about giving up Netflix or alcohol or giving up meat for Lent. But in the Judeo-Roman times, picking up your cross really looks like this. A man carrying a patibulum or the cross beam of a, of a wooden cross. And he is carrying this. There's only one place a person goes when he carries his cross. There is only one purpose, one reason a person carries his cross. And that is to the place of execution, to the place of death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, said it best, that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So Jesus then, when he said, carry your cross, was telling everyone there, and they would know this very clearly, that in order to follow him and to be his true disciples, they all had to die. Of course, this didn't mean a physical death, although many of them did endure a physical death, uh, uh, as in they were martyred for the kingdom. But he also meant a figurative death, a dying to self. So we are called, therefore, to turn away from idolatry or self-centeredness, to deny ourselves to ourselves. Not to trivialize it, but this is, denying ourselves is the same word that was used when Peter denied Christ. When he said, I never knew him. Jesus is saying, deny yourself to yourself. That means, I say, I never knew myself. Give that part of yourself up to him. So let me explain this for the rest of the sermon and give you three aspects of denying ourselves that I think that the Bible talks about. The first one, I think, has got to do with what we seek. What drives you? What keeps you going each day? What gives you a sense of purpose and a meaning in life? The first thing that we're called to die to is self-indulgence. Some people are familiar with the concept of YOLO, Y-O-L-O, you only live once. And it goes this way. If you are only going to live once, then you better make sure that you live this life as well as you can. For some people, this is in terms of pleasure, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, right? We live in a culture of self-gratification where the mantra is, if it feels good, do it, right? Uh, why put off to tomorrow what you can enjoy today? Os Guinness once said, as modern people, we have too much to live for, sorry, we have too much to live with and too little to live for. And we know this to be true of Singapore, just as it is in many parts of the world. Never-ending stream of news about upgrading, you know, about money, about property, about investments, about buying stuff, right? The whole system of meritocracy in Singapore, and no offence to the government, is being geared for all of us to climb the ladder of meritocracy, to achieve more, to give more, to deliver more, and to want to climb that ladder and join the red race. The red race sucks us in from the day that we are born, from the time that we are in school, and from the time we join the workplace. And some people say it's even before we are born, it sucks our parents in 
right? Some people, you know, as parents, once they get pregnant, they register their kids for childcare. Why? Because it's hard to get into good childcare. There's near a house, and that's a, and that is of good quality. Before we know it, we're on this never-ending road of chasing upgrades, comparing with our classmates, then our colleagues, comparing with the neighbors, right? Never satisfied with what we have, but always looking out for more. Saying that, hey, if I just can have that one thing, get that job, buy that device, drive that car, live in that address, then I would have made it. I'll be happy. I'll be satisfied. I'll give my life to God. Well, guess what? There will always be that one more mountain to climb. There will always be another hill higher than yours. When will it ever stop? And what drives us to keep going? So to this, the Bible says in Luke, when Jesus was talking to, about the parable of the rich young man, he said, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. What about, apart from possessions, what about the last of the flesh? We look at scandals like the Ravi Zacharias case. Right? This reminds us all too often that it's so easy to give in to a moment of weakness, to repeat it, and then build this into a lifestyle of lies and deceit. To this, the Bible says in Romans, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, let me be clear about this. There's nothing wrong with pleasure, right? Ecclesiastes tells us that God has blessed us and wants to bless us with wealth and possessions. Not only that, he, the ability to enjoy them is a gift of God in itself. He blesses us with the ability to enjoy pleasure. He's not against pleasure. He created a beautiful world. He gave man the ability to create, to dream, to desire, right, and to enjoy what is around us. These are all of God. But when that desire to acquire possessions and to enjoy them becomes our overriding goal and concern, when the pleasure of lust is something that we enjoy outside of the boundaries that God has created for it within marriage, then this becomes an idol in itself. The Bible is full of warnings to the rich young ruler that he cannot choose between God and money. The parable of the rich young man that he places his security in his possessions. So God gives us the ability to enjoy this and all our abundance is from him. But we need to have the right view of pleasure, put it in its right place and enjoy it the way God intended, in a way that glorifies Him and in a way that does not indulge our flesh. So what is the place of pleasure in your life? Is it your number one goal? Is it your purpose for living? Is it what you wake up and dream about? For some people, it's not pleasure. For some people, they struggle with another thing called pride or the pride of life. We live in a culture of self-exaltation. Ego, your face, affirmation, reputation, likes, followers, shares. This is what the multi-billion businesses of YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook are built upon. Why? Because all of us have some measure of NPD. All of us deep down yearn for people to tell us that we're doing well, that we're valued, that we're special, that we're smart, that we're beautiful, that we're talented. We seek to please and to prove our worth to the people around us. When that doesn't happen, we feel unvalidated and unloved. We engage in self-promotion, boasting of our abilities to anybody who would listen and seek for that pat on the back, for the accolade, for the award, just to show the world what we can do. We end up in a spiral of constant striving and insecurity, seeking the approval of men. 
we go all out to get ourselves into that position, the position of authority and power, so that we can prove to the world and show to the world around us our ability and our superiority. We think we know better than others and even better than God Himself. That is the definition of original sin. So what is the alternative? Isn't it human to want to seek this? The Bible tells us in Philippians 2, 5-8, to have the mind of Christ, that look at Him as our perfect example, that even though He was God Himself, He emptied Himself and took on the nature of a servant. He made Himself nothing. He laid aside His majesty and His right to equality with God, and He was obedient even to dying on the cross. So what is your reputation and your status worth to you? Is this something that you can you pour your, your life into? Something that you seek to grow and acquire? Is this something that you're proud of? Something that defines who you are? Or is this something that even after you have achieved it, you'll be willing to say, God, I give this to you. I put this aside for the sake of the kingdom. Would you be willing to humble yourself and put yourself into a lowly position of a servant to serve? To this, Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. So we are called to die to self-indulgence, from seeking pleasure and pride to seeking the kingdom, to move from self-indulgence to self-denial, to change from YOLO, you only live once, to what I would call YOLIF, you only live forever, and to be shaped by the values of the kingdom. Because if you are going to live forever, then we better make sure that how we live this life is going to set us up for eternity. The second thing we want to look at in denying ourselves is to die to what we fear. What keeps you up at night? What concerns you about your future? We are called to die to the need for self-preservation or what we call the need to be gyasi, right? This is the, you know, trying to take extreme measures to avoid risk, to avoid the risk of unintended consequences and undesirable future, uh, risk of insufficiency, the risk of getting what you think is second best. For some, the fear of second best shapes our desire for ambition. The culture of self-determinism today tells us, pursue our aspirations, shape your destiny, fulfill our hopes and dreams, and win. And surely there's nothing wrong with ambition or making plans for the future. Ambitious people are initiators, future-oriented, creative. They're motivated, right? They're highly prized in corporate culture. Why? Because they're the go-getters. They are the ones who will give you the results. They will work hard, make the necessary sacrifices, and they will get on top. It fuels their determination, their passion, and their competitiveness. And this is what makes any company or organization successful. So these people are valued. But if left unchecked, ambition will lead to a desire to win at all costs whether personally or to your teammates. Stepping on others to get what you need, sacrificing your better ethical judgment, sacrificing your rest, your mental balance, your family or personal relationships to achieve the goals that you had set for yourself. Sure, it may look like success in the here and now, but really, at what cost? And what is the return? So the question is, what fuels your ambition and what are we being driven towards? Are they born out of selfish ambition? which is a desire to serve yourself and to make much of yourself? Or are they filled out of Christian ambition, a desire to serve God and to make much of God? The Bible tells us 
to make it our aim to please Him, to work heartily as for the Lord in everything that we do, not as for men. So are we willing to put our future in God's hands, to trust that He has a plan for our lives that is bigger and better than anything that we could have come up with ourselves? Or do we let our personal ambition take all of our own future and drive us towards something that we can touch and feel here today? For some people, it's not ambition. The fear is not about being, you know, about uncertain future, but it's about being second best, right? The fear of insecurity about the future. And this drives our need for control. The culture of today is one of self-sufficiency, independence, depend on no one but yourself, seize the day, copy the make it happen. There's nothing wrong with control. And like, just like ambition, right? It's an essential function of leadership, of management. You do need it in any organization. You need it in your life. Set targets, adjust based on the results, and then improve what you're doing so that you can continually improve towards a certain outcome. In the military, we even have a doctrine for it that determines how you can command units under you and control them towards the outcome that we want. Right? Some of you will have heard, observe, orientate, decide, and act. You do this faster, you will win your enemy. Right? So this is military doctrine for, for control. But really, this is something that we apply to all aspects of our life, whether it's our personal lives, whether it's work, whether it's parenting, whether it's our relationships, we all desire a form of control in some way or another. But the more pertinent question is, why do we need this control? Why do we need the outcomes to come out a certain way? When we dig deep down, many times this is rooted in fear. Fear of failure, fear of uncertainty, and fear of what others think. And like I said, while these are necessary instincts, it reveals a lot about the conditions of our heart especially our heart towards God. 2 Timothy tells us that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and, on, and of love and of a sound mind. Fear is not of God. It is not um, honouring to God. It, reflect, it does not reflect the trust that we place on a God who has our future in His hands. And if our purpose on earth was really to be here to glorify Him, surely we need not fear because God holds our future in His hands. In his hands. This in particular, I think, is, is a problem for me. It's something that I struggle with constantly. You know, whether it was the choice of my job uh, in 25 years ago, studies, what I chose to study, my career path, you know, where to live, how I parent my kids, the sense of knowing what I want and trying, changing whatever variables I could to get there was something that I took pride in, something that I felt I could do. At least if I can do something about it, I know when I get there, it won't be that far off from what I imagined it to be. Ask my wife and kids, and they relate to you ways in which I try to con control them, you know, establish standards for their behaviour, correct their actions, and then move the family towards achieving certain outcomes. Right? Sometimes they say that I'm you know, OCD, right? or, or, or have an obsessive-compulsive disorder. Right? Basically, just have one thing to be done in a specific way, and it's not just any way, but has to be my way because it is the best way. Right? And you say it like a joke, but if you ask them, I don't think they find it that funny. Um, but that, that is something that I personally struggle with. And when I dig deep down and, and ask, why is it that I struggle with this? I think the reason is this. I fear that if I don't control the outcomes for myself, I'm not sure that God would take care of this the way I would have. I think that my idea of what I want my future to be is better than what I think God's idea of my future might be. And that, I think, fundamentally is a lack of trust and a fear of putting my life fully in His hands. What does the Bible say? 
God says that His grace is sufficient for us because His power is made perfect in our weakness. When I am weak, when I don't have the ability to control my own outcomes, it is then and only then that the power of Christ shines forth, not just in my life, but to the people around me. And that is when people see Christ in me. Not when I'm successful and doing what I'm trying to do, but when God is successful in using me. And I think this is an ongoing process. You start by being aware of it, but it's not something that you just change overnight. But it's an ongoing process of yielding and surrender. So how many of us you know, want to be masters of our destiny, to be in charge of our own life, to die by our own hands? To this, Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. So we are called to die to self-preservation and to move from this to self-surrender, to change from being kiasi, avoiding risk, to being kiasin, afraid of God, fear of God. Because God is eternal, whereas the wrong outcomes that we are afraid of are only temporary. They're only part of this world. So we covered two things, the fear of uh, what we seek, what we fear. The third thing I want to cover is what do we serve? Or this culture of self-service. People call it FOMO, fear of missing out. The sense that if you don't look after yourself, no one is going to look after you and you're going to be on the losing end. You are going to miss out. Some people in this area struggle with their own rights and beliefs, serving their rights and beliefs. The prevalent culture today is self-assertion. Look out for yourself, guard against offence, an eye for an eye, stand up for what you believe in. And there are many times that we need to do this. I'm not asking Christians to be pushovers, to become doormats. We need to stand our ground. But when does our insistence on our own rights and beliefs reach a point where it's not pleasing to God? Now, I talked earlier about you know, Western influence, and you know, certainly much of the, the social political influence of the West has made its way to Singapore. There are a few words that have popped up in the media so much that I'm sure most of you would know it by now. Wokeism, right? Or being woke. What on earth is that? Right? It's basically a perceived awareness of issues that concern social and racial justice. Cancel culture, what is that? It's a modern form of ostracizing someone or a business, typically online, for having spoken or acted in a way that is controversial or questionable, typically because you view this person as being not woke enough. So recently, a mob, an internet mob, decided, uh, descended on a, a student from NUS who was writing an article uh, for, uh, for a school submission, and she said, you know, don't cancel me I don't, just because I don't think I'm very woke. What did the internet do? They cancelled her, right? So that's really so much a part of society today. So on one hand, some people see, you know, cancel culture, this is justice exacted by the mob, right? If the system is too slow to move, if people are not going to change their minds, then certainly all of us as people, we can be the power of the masses, we can make a change. But when does this cross the line for us Christians to be acting as part of this internet mob, upholding a set of values and beliefs that may not be consistent with what the Bible holds out to be true? What do we do when we are forced to choose between wokeism or what is deemed to be politically, politically correct in this day and age versus the Word of God? The Word of God says to love your brother and sister, to have consideration for them, to do things out of, in order to help them on their journey. The world says insistence on proving your point of being politically correct is what is valued 
is what is treasured. And if you don't stand up for being correct, then you are a bigot. How do we draw that line, that balance today? What about our desire for revenge or getting even or when our friends are wrong? Let me read you, give you this example. In October 2018, Amber Geiger was a Dallas police officer. She returned to her apartment and she thought there was an intruder in her home. She drew her pistol and she fired one shot, killing a black man, a 26-year-old Botham Jean. The only thing was that when the lights came on, she realised it wasn't her home. The apartment she had entered was one floor directly above hers and she had just shot her neighbour, who was at home, in his own home, eating a bowl of ice cream. When she was sentenced to 10 years in prison, many celebrated the fact that a police officer was finally being held accountable for killing an unarmed and innocent young black man. His, Mr. Jean's mother raised her hands in court and cried, God is good, when the verdict was pronounced. But the courtroom was stunned when the victim's brother, Bronze Jean, asked for permission to speak. Nervously tugging at his collar, Bron looked at Miss Geiger and said, I'm not going to say that I hope you rot and die just like my brother did. But I personally want the best for you. And I wasn't going to say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best of you because that is exactly what Botham would want you to do. And the best is to give your life to Christ. So he paused, he wiped his eyes, and he spoke to the judge. I don't know if it's possible, but can I give her a hug? He met his brother's killer in front of the judge's bench. And he said to her, if you are truly sorry, I speak for myself, that I forgive you. And I know that if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you also. They embraced one another as they wept in their open courtroom. The courtroom that was just minutes ago jubilant with vengeance fell silent except for the sound of people sobbing. They knew that they were witnessing something here that was out of this world, or at least the world as they thought that they knew it. This is what the Bible says in Philippians, to count each other more significant than yourself, to look not to our interests, or not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. So can we choose to give up our right to revenge, to hate, to feel offended, to exact retribution, to fight for our views and beliefs that is at odds to the beliefs of others? Will we subject our own perspective of truth, our worldview, to the truth, big capital T, to the truth of the word? And we can only do so ourselves because we know we have been forgiven much and we are equally under judgment, not from our fellow men, not only from our fellow men, but under judgment of God. Because we all stand as sinners before an awesome and holy God. So for other people, the issue is not about serving their rights and beliefs, but deciding where to serve with their resources, their time, their energy and money. We spend so much of our formative years in school, you know, building up the ability to generate resources, right? That's what school is there for, right? And you figure it out by now. This culture of self-service says, maximize your personal gain, build a legacy, use it for yourself and your loved ones because you've earned it. The Bible says, this is how we know what love is, that Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. There are many examples of this in my life. I'm surrounded 
constantly by friends who I grew up with in, uh, in, you know, in, in, in youth church many years ago who are today serving as full-time ministers, people who are in the mission field, you know, overseas today now putting their lives at risk because the country is in turmoil. I have people who have quit their, friends who have quit their jobs and joined uh, local ministries full-time to devote all their time, energy and money to serving the kingdom. I recently caught up with some of my friends from university, people who I served with in a, in a university Christian fellowship uh, 25 years ago. And one of them quit his job to, become, to start his own church. Another one spent many more years studying to get a PhD in computer science. Okay, a PhD in computer science today is worth a lot, right? He quit his job after that to become a full-time pastor in a church. And I have many friends like this. And I look at my own life and I sometimes ask God, God, is this something that you want me to do? Is that, is that what it means to give my time, energy and money to you? And I'm reminded of a day 30 years ago when I stood as a 15-year-old in a hall, a smaller hall than this. This was a youth camp that I participated in when I was 15 years old. And the speaker said, for those of you who want to give your life to God. For those of you who are willing to say, God, take my life and use it as you will, I want you to step forward. And I was 15 years old at that time. I didn't really know what it meant. I had no idea what it would actually cost me or what it would look like 30 years later. And I stepped forward on that day. And I remember that clearly because I remember taking a step and telling God, God, whatever happens in the future, I put it in your hands. And I just want to live in a way that pleases you. And as I ask God, when I look at my friends who are out there you know, serving full-time in the mission field, and I ask God, God, is this, what, is this what you want of me? And he says, 15 years ago, when you stepped forward, I saw you and I heard you. And what you're doing today and where you are and the talents and the giftings and the position that I've given to you is precisely the place of service that I want for you. That is exactly where I want you to be. And that is how I want you to serve me. So it's not about having a, a secular or a spiritual view about you know, being in full-time, being more spiritual or, or more closely connected to God but it's in your heart. How do you take your talents, your experiences, your time, your energy, your money, and how do you use this for the kingdom? I have uh, you know, cell group leaders in, 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 my, in my cluster that have just, you know, they have a newborn, or not newborn, but uh, a young kid trying for a second one, uh, just changed to a new job, moved to a new home, having issues trying to, you know, manage the dynamics of different in-laws because they are at different ends of the island. Every week, they make a, 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 a drive to move, literally move home from one end of the island to the other end just to fulfill the obligations to the various sets of parents. And we ask them to step forward to say, will you head up a new cell group? Will you, take, will you consider whether this is the time that you would step forward to take on leadership of a cell group? And without hesitation, they pray about it and they say, yes, we will. Because if God has sacrificed so much for us, what is this that we are giving back to Him? And there are many people like this. Individuals, you know, musicians, technical team, people who serve in church week in, week out, 
those who volunteer with BCS and excite conducting programs for IT students, people who give up their time, their money uh, to the community, to charities. There are many examples of people who do this. Some people will look at their lives and say, you're missing out. You're giving up something that you could have enjoyed yourself. You could have maxed it out for your own benefit. You look at the career and the lifestyle that you're giving up. What is it that they're missing? Now, I must say, there's no condemnation and no comparison. Everyone has a unique calling, gifting and purpose in this world. And I'm not saying that any example that I've stated is an example that you should follow yourself. But in your heart, where does your time, your energy and your money go? What are you pouring your life and your resources into? Only you yourself will know this deep down. How, does your, how do your choices about your resources reflect Christ to the world around us? So to this, Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. So we are called to die to self-service, to move from serving ourselves towards self-sacrifice. From the idea of formal of fear of missing out to what I call formic, fear of missing the kingdom. If we realize the value and reality of living for the kingdom here today instead of the here and now, then we fix our eyes on what is ahead, fix our eyes on what is above, on our future glory and our blessed hope. And because we don't want to miss out on that kingdom, then we can miss out on what is here, in here and now. As we conclude, let me just say that it's not an easy message to preach. As I'm talking to you, I'm talking so much to myself. How can we live in a way that is like this, in this day and age, when the whole of society is going a different way? Is this the life for everyone? Is discipleship like, you know, well, level 3 Christian, then you can be level 1, level 2, or level 3? You can choose. No. Jesus says that whoever would want to save his... Sorry. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. This is a message for all of us. You cannot be a believer of Christ without being a follower of Christ. And that is the true cost of discipleship. That whoever would save his life in this world will lose it. But he also said that whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will save it. So in doing this, this will cost us our very life. In doing so, we will find what we just sang about in the song just now. When God revealed himself to Abraham, he said, Abraham, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. That is what awaits all of us at the end of this journey. So, while in this world, it might look like we have lost out, but in eternity, we would have gained everything. Is it worth it? If you believe the words of Christ today, absolutely yes. This is the only way that we can live. To move from YOLO to YOLIT, from being kiasi to being kiasin, and from FOMO to FOMIC. It's not an optional add-on for Christians. The fundamental question that we all need to ask ourselves is who is on the throne of our life? And that really is the central question of today. Because it is either ourself on the cross and Jesus on the throne, 
or is Jesus on the cross and ourselves on the throne? And that is something that all of us will need to ponder for ourselves. And I recognize that doing this is going to be very difficult. You will feel outcast, misunderstood. You might be shunned. People around you will think that you are crazy. They may take advantage of you. But that's what they did to Christ. And if that is the price of following Christ, if that was the life that he had on this earth, then surely we cannot be a follower of him if we are not headed in the same way. Let me also say that the cost of discipleship is not what you pay for salvation. It does not get you saved. It does not keep you saved. But this is what it means to be saved. So we should all examine our heart of hearts, look at our posture towards God, and who is sitting on the throne of our lives. As we close, let me just quickly share with you three things. How do we do this? Firstly, we must be born again. Jesus gave us the example of the cross. He died. He rose again. He gave us His Holy Spirit that by the grace that He gives us, that enables us to live through our failures, to get up and to try again. Because if we died with Him, we will also be raised with Him to a new life, to a new flesh, with a new spirit and a new nature. And that is the only way we can do this. He tells us to take out our cross daily. It's not a one-time thing that you say, you know, at a, at a, at a sinner's prayer. This is something that we live out each and every day of our life. In our prayer life, in our worship, in our ministry, in our fellowship with brothers and sisters, and in how we pray and seek God each day. And the third thing, we do this because we seek first the kingdom, the eternal perspective. What Elder Kogwan spoke of last week as the priority, the place of the kingdom. That we choose the kingdom and God's ways over our ways. We choose eternity over the here and now. And we choose to live for that blessed hope, to hope for the restoration of the kingdom. And that one day Christ will return and He will be our exceedingly great reward. May God grant us the strength and grace to walk in the steps of Christ.